Okay, good morning everyone. Um, we've got um, uh, two passages today, a, uh, a long one and a not quite so long one. So the first passage is the whole of uh, Exodus chapter 32. So if you uh, want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 or look on, or look on the screen above. All right, Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from me, from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I'll make, you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you? that you led them into such great sin. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to do evil. They say to me, make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out jumped this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Israelites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of your book. You have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Okay, the, 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 the second reading is from 1 John 1, um, uh, verse 8 to 2, verse 2. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks, Wayne. Um, it's good to be with you. My name's Mike Sams, if I haven't met you before. And that may be the case if you've just come in the last few weeks, because I haven't been here for five weeks with, with, uh, with travel and sickness. So it's great to be with you, and it's a pleasure to open up um, 1 John to have a look at a few of these uh, just a couple sentences that are so profound and so important for us. So let me pray, and then we're going to um, wrestle with them together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together and uh, and be warmed um, by your word, uh, definitely not by the weather. And we pray that we will see Jesus clearly and see how it is that he saves us. In your son's name, amen. And I want to ask you, do you ever struggle with trusting people? I suspect there may be times when that's the case for all of us in some way. It could be in a workplace at a time when when someone has thrown you under the bus and it's just left you feeling disillusioned. 
I can remember a time at work many, many years ago before I was a pastor and uh, my boss said to me, you're going to take responsibility and, and supervise and lead this team going forward and that's going to happen in the next uh, month or so. Only to find out the next week that I was just a backup plan and that someone else was lined up all along to take the role and I was just uh, kind of a fail-safe. That burnt me as like a 19, 18-year-old. It made it hard to trust people in charge. I can still remember, even though it was even longer ago than that, how brutal the schoolyard is. Everyone just trying to figure out life and trying to make it on their own, trying to be friends. But when it comes to trying to identify who you are, it gets really difficult. I remember, and this is a dangerous thing to say because my dad is here today, but I remember a time at school when I was in the school in uh, city in Sydney and we jigged at lunch and we got to go into the city in year 12 and we decided that we weren't just going to go into Circular Quay for, for the lunch break. We were going to miss, a, miss a, uh, an extra uh, class after lunch. Now, believe it or not, I was, I was a goody two-shoes and I hated the idea, but I just went along for the ride. But we got busted. And then we got busted. Some of my friends decided I would be the one who was the instigator and the one that set it all up, which just cut me to the core, and that was devastating to me. It's very likely all of us in some way are disillusioned in some way by people who have burnt us, that we thought they were on our side, but they weren't. That's an important question for us today, not to wrestle with the people around us, but to ask, is God just another example of someone who we keep hearing is on our side, but he's not actually? Can we actually have deep convictions that God is for us? Now, obviously, I'm asking that question because the answer is yes, but I want to bring you along for the ride today and help you see that. That's why I love these two verses and I thought we could just spend today stepping outside of that series in James and just think about the very heart of what we say Christianity is about, Jesus saving us. How does he do it? And my goal today is for us to see Jesus is in fact our advocate. And if he isn't your advocate, I hope today that you will see he wants to be your personal advocate. And for all of us to see how we can have confidence in that because of these great verses in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, so let's, uh, let's uh, do this together and let's, uh, let's wrestle with it. Now, when we read these verses, we start off with, uh, let's see if we come up on the screen. John says, my dear children, as Rowdy said, that's everyone. I write this to you so that you will not sin. See, what he said before, and we did actually, you know, some of you may vaguely remember that we looked at 1 John earlier in the year and saw how much confidence we have because we heard that God is light and that we should walk in the light, that God is no darkness at all in him. And that's an important thing for us to just reflect on a little bit later. God cannot have anything that is unholy, dark, be part of him, be with him, be in any way like him. He is nothing like that. And we're to live in the light. And we can have a relationship with him. And that means we cannot claim to be without sin. 
which is where we picked up our reading today, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And so in light of that, John then goes on to say, my dear children, I write this uh, to you so that you will not sin. I want you to walk in the light because that is what God is like and that is what a relationship with him is like. He goes on then to say, but if anybody does sin, if anybody does sin, now he's not saying, now someone, some of you might not be perfect. Right? He said this whole argument is just said before, we are going to sin. He's saying, but in the, in, the, in the case that we are going to turn away from God, what's going to happen? Now, even before we get there, what's the big deal? Okay, so what if we sin? What's the big deal about this? Surely God can forgive our mistakes. Why can't God, if he's so big, just sweep everything under the carpet? Why can't God just see the problem and ignore it? Well, God is light. God is perfectly good, and when there is wrong, he can't just ignore it and sweep it under the carpet. And that's why I asked Wayne today to read uh, that astoundingly shocking and kind of tragically comical passage in Exodus 32. The story of the golden calf highlights a problem that we are seeing dealt with today. The story of the golden calf is a great example of a biblical pattern that has happened since that first sin in Genesis 3 and continues throughout humanity and impacts us. You see, what we had read to us is quite astounding. We saw that Moses is gone to the mountain to talk with God. Their advocate, their mediator, is actually talking to God. He's on the mountain. And the people grow impatient. And they, they are, well, Moses might be not even there anymore. We don't know where he is. Where's God? What's going on? They grow impatient. And the problem is, a holy God is still God. And humanity's image bearers decide in their impatience to be as unholy as you could possibly imagine. The depth of their stupidity and sin is quite astounding that I think we're supposed to be shocked and laugh at it at the same time. Let me, let me just point out a couple of things that we see in that verse. Um, we read in verse 32, uh, chapter 32, verse 4, He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said... These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, where are they? They're at the foot of the mountain. They know that Moses was going. But it's not just where they were, it's when they are. See, why are they at that place? It's because it's the time after they've been rescued after centuries of slavery of the Egyptians. And God has done this extraordinary act that we read in, this, in, the, in the book of Exodus, has rescued them from slavery. And at this point, we see that gold shaped into a calf is now directly what they are saying is their God. It's astounding stupidity. 
God can't believe what they had done. In verse 38, he just subs that they had been quick to turn away from what I commanded. It is our way. It might not be as stark. I'm not going to throw gold into a, fern- into a fire and turn it into a God that I worship. But in other ways, I and you do turn away from God. And God sees them. And in verse 9, he says, they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. God is rightly angry. This is not some capricious kind of wicked God who is just angry because he gets to be angry. This is a God who made a treasure that he loves, who wants to be in relationship with, who he made as his image bearers to be with him, who he's rescued out of slavery and they turn around and they say, we'll go with another God because we don't even know where Moses is anymore. And it gets even more ridiculous. Aaron responds, Aaron the priest, who was Moses' kind of right-hand man, who through the whole rescue, Aaron was there faithfully serving God, who's had the biggest brain explosion you could possibly have as a Christian leader. Look at his response. Oops, sorry, I didn't put it up there. That's a fail. But let me read it to you in verse 22. You may have it open up in front of you. You know, he says to, to Moses, Moses, look Okay, hang on, Moses. Just, just let, you know these people. He goes, verse twenty-two. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, "Make us gods who will go before us." He's like, "Come on, Moses. You know they're kind of a bit ridiculous. I needed to help guide them through this." But what he actually said was, if we stop and think about it, Moses, I did this evil thing so they wouldn't do evil. It's just mind-boggling. Aaron's solution was to, to stop people going along and forgetting God by giving them another God to worship instead of God. His ends justifies the mean, defies logic. But the reality is, this is not just the state of a certain people at a certain time. This is the picture of humanity. Maybe in a less comical, absurd way at times. But it is the state that you and I are in. The Apostle Paul, when he tried to sum it up to the Romans, when he was talking to them in chapter 3, you may know he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Saying, all in some way have created their own golden calf. God is rightly angry with our sin and the consequences of it. And here's the kicker. We're going deep and dark before we go to the light, okay? The consequences are worse than what was so horrendous at Sinai. That was, a, that was a stark, and there's many questions we could ask, but that's not the talk today, about what had happened but did you read along that at the end there was a play, but before that there was people who rejected him that even didn't decide to turn back and there was dead and bloodshed? It was an awful picture. But it's not, as, it's not as stark as the eternal reality. 
John knew this eternal reality, and he talked about it in John chapter 3 of his gospel, the biography of Jesus' life. You know, the biography where in chapter 3 there's the famous verse in verse 16, I, no, God so loved the world. But after that, we see God's love in light of our relationship towards him without Jesus. So what do, what do we see in John 3.36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. See, what's stark about this uh, verse is it's not that God's wrath will come. It's that without Jesus, you're already in this place. Our rebellion is so stark that it remains. It's not will come. Now, in our family, there's been an issue that only just come to light last night. And I'm still dealing with it, so I'm going to need a little bit of uh, therapy with you. I'm going to just download it all for you. Last night, uh, Dad's here with us, and so one of the things, you know, it just so happened that we turned on the golf to watch. That's not surprising. If you know Dad or I, we'd watch sport at anything. And we turn on the golf. But it kept on stopping, and I kept on pressing play, and it kept on pausing, and it kept on happening. And then in the corner of my eye, I look over there, and one of my daughters, who I won't name, but her, her, her name's Chloe, um, <laughs> so I will name, um, she's chuckling away, and I'm like, what is she doing? And then I see she's doing this on a, on a phone. I'm like, Chloe, what are you doing? And she just starts laughing as hard as she could possibly laugh about. She kept on, yeah, yeah, I'm not clapping, but you can clap if you like. She thinks she's the hero of this story. I don't see it that way. She's laughing and laughing because she kept on pausing it. And I had no idea. But here's the thing. Back in February, I got COVID. And I, long, short story, I, I accidentally got all my family in isolation when they didn't need to be. And they were a little bit angry at me. And so I'm in, in, in our shed that's separate. And I'm lying there. I'm struggling to breathe. I can't even concentrate. I can't even do anything. And I'm getting more and more frustrated because the TV won't even work. Every time I turn it on, it freezes. And I just thought the internet wouldn't work. All the while, Chloe and I'll implicate Emily because she was doing it as well, just thought it would be hilarious because they knew the only thing I could do was watch TV. We'll keep pressing pause. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because up until last night, my wrath was not remaining on them because I was clueless and I did not know. <laughs> but my payback is coming. Okay, It's in the future and you guys have to watch out. That is separate. That is different. It's not in the future in that sense. The reality is coming, but our state before God is that we are in facing his wrath. Remains. It's not we will be appointed as ones who face his wrath. This is our state before him. We don't come to God neutral. This is a hard word, isn't it? But if we stop and honestly reflect, this is not where we say to God, how dare you? If we actually understand how holy he is, how great he is, how much he loves his creation and how much we have rebelled against him. 
It is a right and good response. There is light and darkness. We could eject by saying, I haven't done anything wrong, um, and oh, it's not that bad. But after all, he wrote this letter for if you have not sinned, and maybe I'm not that bad. But you could convince yourself that you're a good person. You could convince yourself, on one level you probably are, and that we all like each other at some level, and we are good. But when we, when we look in our relationship before God, can we honestly say we stack up? Can we honestly say we have not replaced God with other things in our life? And yet he made us to be in a wonderful, glorious relationship with him. Can you see the depths of our problem? We are in we are in deep trouble. Now let's go back to one John. He writes this so that anyone um, does not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who could possibly step in and deal with this problem? Well, we see here, John is saying, Jesus is our advocate. Moses was a, a kind of a, Moses was kind of like a pre-Jesus figure. He's supposed to see, we're supposed to see Jesus in Moses pointing us in. Moses was flawed and couldn't solve the problem, but he kind of stepped in between the people and represented. And now we're seeing that Jesus is actually the true advocate. Jesus can step in, but in the end, is he unsatisfactory? Like Moses. Well, the description of Jesus says it all. We have an advocate with the Father, and he's going to have a crack at doing the best that he possibly can. No. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, the description says it all. Jesus is perfectly righteous. The word become flesh is how John in his gospel describes Jesus. God himself becoming fully human. And he didn't just become fully human. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He didn't need John or anyone else to write him a letter and say, I write this so that you will not sin because he never did. He didn't need John to write to him, when you do sin, you need to ask for forgiveness. And you need because he lived a perfectly sinless life perfectly holy and righteous life the fully god fully man came and he now is our advocate but what could he possibly say just create a fake scenario for a moment we have to stand before the father and there is the father and we're about to speak to him trembling, and Jesus steps in. And what could he possibly say in our defense when we realize we are under God's wrath? How can it possibly be dealt with? Well, he can do more than empathize. He can bring what he has done and what we read in the next few verses. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. I want you to go away today understanding what this means. And I think one of the problems we have with this verse is that in English, we have a word that explains this even better, but it's just out of favor that we don't use it anymore. And so our translations often don't use it. 
But it's a super easy word to understand. It's just a word we don't use anymore. I wonder if, if you ever heard of the word propitiation. Give me a nod if you've heard of that word before. Some, but some are looking at me like, what did you just say? Did you just mumble? Propitiation. It's not a word we often hear in other places. I heard it in a movie once and I thought, oh, wow. I don't know anyone would understand what that was. Propitiation. What is that word? You see, actually, what is this, this, uh, this verse is saying is that Jesus is the atoning or propitiating sacrifice for our sins. See, the word propitiation just means wrath being dealt with. It's not a hard concept to get your head around it. It's just the words out of favor that we don't use. God's wrath has been appeased. It's been dealt with. And Jesus' death is the way that this happens. He comes before the Father, not just to try and convince him to sweep it under the carpet and do something that would be quite wicked, actually. But he comes before the Father and steps into our place. You see, this whole idea of sacrifice is not a whole new concept. Way back at Sinai, just before the people, the people are going to get to the promised land, well, not that generation, but the following generation, even Moses didn't get to go. But as they now live in the promised land, as they go on to live, God set up a system of sacrifices to kind of help the people relate to him. These sacrifices of atonement, which is there was many and it's complex. And if you've ever read Leviticus, you can see it kind of gets quite deep and involved. But at the heart of the sacrificial system was blood being spilt for life. But that system couldn't properly work because no goat, no animal could truly sacrifice for a human. But the idea is beautifully summed up in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. I didn't put it on the screen, but let me read it to you and just take it in. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I had given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The whole point of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was to point to the one who truly could die in our place because he is one of us, but he's perfect, will die in our place and his blood will give us life. He steps into our shoes. The wrath that ultimately we need to face, Jesus took on board at the cross. He stands not only in between us and God, As an advocate, he stands into our place on the cross, taking on board all of God's righteous wrath for our rejection of him. God is the one who can deal with our sin. You see, Jesus was just not only the fully fully human, as fully God, the one who has been offended. He took it upon himself to deal with our sin. Our sins have been paid by the only one who can pay them. Do you want him to step into your shoes and take your punishment for you? It's a hard word, but it's an extraordinarily life-giving word, isn't it? 
that God has actually decided to step into human humanity, into humanity and not just empathize with us, not just try and set us on a right path knowing that we can't do it. We cannot rescue ourselves. There is nothing we can do. And so he steps into humanity to face the wrath that we deserve because of what, how we have treated him. That is, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's, it's not just a nice idea to see Jesus as an example sacrificing himself for us. Jesus is not only going to say we are okay or be some kind of dodgy, sleazy lawyer who tries to get people to trust him. He's not that kind of advocate. He steps into our place. Just consider this for a moment. What Jesus is doing here. Should you trust in something that has happened that gives you life? Or should we ignore it? There's nothing, nothing else that needs to be done. Did you see uh, how much our advocate gives us something to do? Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm going I'm to just kind of butter up the father for you. I'm going to tell him uh, you're okay with me. And then I'm going to get each of you to come up and say all the good things that you have done and to bring them before God. He doesn't do that because that would not work. He does it all for us. We just believe in him and trust in him. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary little two verses, isn't it? We have God himself advocating for us, even though we rejected him. And he's made it clear that everything is okay. So what do we do with this? I've just got three points to finish. I want to ask you a question. When you stand before God, who do you want to represent you? Friends, I think you've got two choices, whether you like them or not. It will be you or it will be Jesus. Can you be confident of your works and confident that you haven't built any golden calf and come before God and say, I'm okay with you, right? But why would you? When the one who has stepped in and is no pro bono lawyer, who has not just done the bare minimum but has done it all, has paid the price for you. I want to suggest to you today that you need to turn to him and trust in him and make the day the day when you decide that God's wrath no longer remains on you because it's on Jesus. And by trusting in him, this can be that day. But I also want to ask you, I also want you to consider that you need to remind yourself regularly that you cannot earn God's favor. Oh, we are so good at forgetting what it is to be a Christian, aren't we? Like how we saw they, uh, they forgot what God had done for them and they can go on to sin. We, can so, we are so good at this, we can forget that God has done everything for us as we're saying it and try and earn our favor with God. 
It's good to have habits that help us remind it. I was literally talking just just in the break with, with, with Barb, and she's just asking about all the travel that I have to do and how I earned all these points. And it just made me realize every time I get on a plane, because I've got so many points now, and I've got extra, um, uh, get you know, you got the levels. The fact that I have that... I have not. I, I've had to earn by getting more and more flights. Every time I get on a plane, I should remember that's the exact opposite to how I have a relationship with God. I do not earn it in any way, but I get into the lounge at the airport by earning it by getting on lots of flights. Every time I'm in that lounge, I've got a way of remembering, ah, this is the exact opposite way how I earn eternity with God. How, do you have the habit of reminding yourself regularly that you cannot earn God's favor? How quickly we forget. How do you remind yourselves daily, personally, with your friends, in your prayer life? Do you gather together? Do you, do you think this through? Do you have ways of reminding yourself that the way that God saves me is not only great love, it's also all him and none of me? I want to challenge you to intentionally remind yourself about God's favor and not just assume it and think that it's something that we know so well that we put aside. And to do that, we need to subtly look at where do I sometimes move those things and think that this helps, this is like a good backup clause. What is it in your life? Could it be the way you serve at church that no one else knows about, but you know God knows and you think that's a good little just check? God does not want us to think that way. Could it be that you do this thing for someone, that you care for someone and you think God likes that I do that? And he does. You see, the distinction is we do all these things. We serve each other. We, we um, love other people. All the ways we're supposed to live because he has done it all for us. Not so that we can be in relationship with him. Do you intentionally make sure you don't fall into that trap? And then lastly, always let the way you have been saved be the source of your confidence in the gospel. Do you, do you think that understanding with greater clarity what Jesus does gives us more and more confidence? See, knowing Jesus died for you is great. Knowing that Jesus actually paid the penalty for my sin and all wrath has been dealt with. All wrath has been dealt with. My confidence in what God has done increases when we understand how he saves us more and more. And I want to encourage you to build confidence in what Jesus has done. The more we understand the cross and how it saves us, the more confidence we can have in the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that your son is a sacrifice for our sins. Help us to be saved by it, by that alone. And to build our confidence, not in ourselves, but in knowing what you have done for us. Amen.